Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 41. 41, that means, oh my goodness, how can 2020, the end of 2020, be right over the horizon? But we know it is because this is Episode 41. (laughs) So this podcast is produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which is a thing, but it isn't, isn't really a thing still. It's typical of my little world here uh, that uh, we, we produce this out of a passion for Jesus. And my life's calling is, is to produce things that help others get close to Jesus. That's it. So I call that Jesus-centered resources. Sounds pretty good. My name, again, is Rick. I'm, I, I'm also, also author of the just-released daily devotional called the Jesus Center Daily. Uh, and you can go to my website, jesuscenterdaily.com, if you want a free sampler of it. You can get a 10-day sampler. You can watch my little intro video. You can see the nature path that I run on twice a week. Now, that wasn't as tantalizing as I thought it would be when I said it. <laughs> so you can watch that video or you can order right from the site. Um, uh, and you can order, obviously, directly from Amazon. It's called the Jesus Center Daily. It's a daily dive into intimacy with Jesus from like, so many different facets of the diamond. Um, it's, it's really a collection of all of my passion and thought about Jesus over the last two decades, filtered through some very creative, unusual um, trajectories. So, and if you already bought your copy, please do head on over to Amazon and, and post your review. It takes less than a couple of minutes to do that. And it really helps the book get out there to other people. So, Thanks for doing that. Think about uh, this also as a fantastic little Christmas gift for that special person in your life who wants daily relationship with Jesus to be strengthened. So this is the seventh episode in a series I'm calling Present Concerns. So what we're doing is we're simply exploring the issues and challenges that we deal with on an everyday basis. And then we're trying to connect them to the same or similar issues and challenges that Jesus dealt with in his time, and then slow down and pay attention to how he engaged those issues. So today we're going to explore, uh, this one has a bite to it. We're going to explore hope deferred. So, and thank God the Beckinator is joining me again for this, because this is a two-person job, I think, today. So, uh, Becky, we tend to think about hope in the major categories of life. Like when we think about hope, we think about big things in our life or big things that have been deferred in our life. But we also have like these hundreds of tiny little hopes crawling around our life every day. I don't even think we realize how many little hopes we're living in the midst of in our everyday life. So what are a few like tiny hopes you have just for your day today? If you think about your day today and what are you hoping for what would you qualify as some tiny hopes today? I was really hoping that it would snow today. <laughs> because you know what? You Coloradoans, you got your snow. I heard Boise's getting snow. Last year, we got like one tiny snowstorm here, and it's raining. It's been raining for days. So I miss the snow. If it's going to be 20 degrees, I think that there should be snow associated with that, not just wet earth. Yeah, and that, that that's that qualifies as a tiny hope. Yeah, yeah, it feels large to me today, but but it's the kind it's, of thing I think that it's a tiny hope. In, in the context of everything, it's like eh, no big deal. I, I wish this would happen, but in in tomorrow or the next day, it'll be a no big deal hope, right? You won't yep. be fixated on, on it. You won't be shattered on it. You won't have to set up a counseling appointment uh-huh. because it didn't snow. Yeah, so we we can survive. Um, the extermination of these little hopes reasonably well once we're past them. Um, But then again, maybe not. If these little hopes, let's think of them like termites. They're like all these little hopes are like termites and all of the little hopes that are deferred, like, Hey, it didn't snow again today. And now, and you know what? It never snows here as much as I wish it would snow. So then it starts to eat away at some foundation 
there that it's almost imperceptible. And I think what it's eating away at is a foundation of trust. That sounds a little funny, but, but really whatever propels us into um, trusting Jesus or anyone for that matter is our hope. You know, if you think about any relationship, hope is always lingering there. And when you lose hope, you lose the relationship too at the same time. Hope is sort of intimately tied to our ability to be in relationship, not only with Jesus, but with every other person as well. And so when there's a repeated destruction of our hope, that's simply a relationship killer. So there's a, in this, uh, in Proverbs 14, there's just a long list of those like proverb-like aphorisms. They, they don't really have connection one to the other. It's just a, this disconnected list of wise sayings in Proverbs 14, but embedded in that list is this little explosive device, this little IED. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. So the hope deferred causes illness and maybe terminal illness in some cases. But when those hopes are fulfilled, it becomes sort of this life-giving thing that springs up in our life and produces fruit. That's what this little wise aphorism is saying. This little passage, by the way, is where we get the word heart sick, common word now, but this is where it came from. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So our unrealized hopes, you know, as it implies, can make us sick enough to be dead in some cases. If your hope is literally killed, then the life within you is dead as well. And right now in our culture and around our world, we're experiencing widespread heart sickness. So many plans and dreams and expectations that are just shattered. I, I lead a group of young people, young adults every week. You've heard me talk about this before on the podcast. And every week I hear a new slew of things that these kids have lost and don't know what to do. One of the kids in our group uh, became the, the band majorette for the marching band of her high school. She'd been working for three years to get to this position. It's a highly responsible and um, honoring leadership position in her school. And she has not been able to lead her band one time during this. And she had one shot, their band had one shot at one football game at one halftime show. And the day before the game was supposed to happen, it got canceled because of COVID. So she showed up this last week and you could just see it in her face. Like how many more of these blows can I take? Um, and trying to live in the midst of the shattering is a, is a significant uh, challenge. And one of the things that came out in our conversation this last week is how important laughter and our last episode was on good humor. And, and how important laughter is. For kids today, humor is helping them to survive the darkness that they're living through. And some of it's dark humor, <laughs> but it helps them to survive in the midst of it. So, you know, Becky, I know we have our own stories of hope deferred, and they're always raw and vulnerable. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to share some of your own journey into the land of heartsick, uh, into the land of hope deferred. Well, a lot of you might remember if you've been listening for a long time, just that, you know, I've been struggling with infertility. It, it's going on nearly a decade now. And um, I've talked about this in past episodes. Um, and my journey was it started out with miscarriages, um, multiple miscarriages. At some point, we decided that that, you know, was too much for us to keep going to. So we went through 26 hours of foster care training and even had a foster care shower. Then on the eve of our final placement meeting, some things were revealed that made it so that we were not going to be able to be foster care parents. It would disqualify us um, with some of the things that my husband was struggling with. Then we had a medical breakthrough. And if you remember on the eve before I went in for a minor surgery was when God revealed to me that I wasn't going to be staying in my marriage. And, um, the next day after that, um, 
is when everything was revealed and that resulted in me having to leave my home, my job, go on a van life. <laughs> and then I met my husband now, Nick, and hope was restored. We got married and we've had nine months of infertility. So um, it's been a long journey and we are finally realizing that we can't stay in this waiting room anymore, that it's actually not a decade in a waiting room is just far too long for a person to stay. And so it's time for us to move out of the waiting room. And that means that I have to accept um, that this is the end of the road for me um, in this journey. So when you talk about hope deferred, <laughs> the, the, the hardest part is that the hope was still there. And so you can't close the door. And I think that I'm finally realizing that if I don't move past this door and close it, there are things that are waiting on the other side that I'm, that I'm putting off. Mm -hmm. And, um, and part of that is that you have to move for, through grief. So in order for me to get past this door, I will have to go through grief and I will have to, you know, let myself go through all of those stages. Um, but I have hope because I believe that God is totally here with me through this and that he has something else on the other side of that door. So, uh, the, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it, what you just said is painful to hear. Um, you know, because you're at this point where you've kept the door open, kept the door open. Now you need to make a decision to close the door. And those are words, but they also, those words are going out in front of you, um, pulling you in a direction that eventually you're going to step through the door and close it behind you. Um, and it's going to, there's such a finality to some of these things that we wrestle with, with hope. It's, it patterns after, you know, all of the hopes deferred that we're living through this year. You're coming up to that special date. Maybe it's your wedding date, or uh, maybe it's uh, the day that uh, that you were supposed to start a new job, or maybe it's uh, a special graduation date. And you get and you have that open door, uh, even as the event comes closer. And then there's a point at which circumstances say the door's going to close now. That thing's over. Um, and it's almost unbearable. It's, it's like you can't think of closing the door until it has to be closed. And you said something, Becky, that, um, that struck me too, that it's been 10 years in the waiting room. And you said, that's too long. What makes, uh, and I don't mean this in the way that it sounds. I hope you take this in the way that I mean it. But what makes 10 years in the waiting room not possible? Why is 10 years in the waiting room too much? Yeah. So I, um, you know, my, my therapist is the first person who actually used the term, the waiting room with me, um, because we're just not, we're not actually meant to live in waiting rooms. We're meant to live outside of those things. And one of her biggest concerns for a while, for actually nearly three years now, has been how long I've been in this waiting room mm. and that there needed to be an, there needed to be a time that I, I had to leave it because, you know, you can continue on this road of just like, well, maybe next month and maybe next month. And, you know, are you going to do that until menopause or, you know, um, but there's, you're, you're kind of actually holding yourself back from a lot of other opportunities because you're staying in this waiting room, you know, maybe um, deciding when you're, when you're thinking about being a parent, you're planning your life around there, right? Like the way that you plan your finances, the way that you live your life is all kind of in that mode. And, but if you close this door, then you would say, oh, well, I'm going to do something different with my finances, or I'm going to do something different with all this disposable time that I have. But when you don't close that door, you just keep staying there and doing the things that you're doing. And it's just not, we're not meant to live in waiting rooms. And the reason why we stay here though, is because the grief to think like, well, but if I close this door, 
then I know what's the first part of that's going to be. It's going to be hard and painful and people aren't going to understand, you know, already as I've started to be more vocal in the last few, few weeks that I'm walking out of the waiting room, that I'm going to close this door. Immediately people are like talking to me about this herb that they read about that I should take or they, you know, like everyone's trying to fix the problem and it's they're like, try, they're trying to uh, <laughs> ways to stay in the waiting room. They, they're like, no, wait, we don't want you to leave the waiting room. Take this, you know, special herb every day. And I heard it's magic and it, you'll be cured. And, you know, um, you know, there's, there's no end of things that people have heard yeah. wives tales and everything. So, but you have to just decide, I really appreciate all of that, but I actually have to leave here. This is not a good place. It hasn't been a good place for me to live for a while. And I think that there's peace on the other side of this. And I think that there's opportunity on the other side of this that yeah. I'm keeping myself away from by staying here. Yeah. You know, the ultimate closing of the door, if you think about it in terms of how we're discussing it here, the ultimate closing of the door is death. And in America, just by COVID alone in this year, a quarter million people have died. And, and unless you're living in a relational uh, circle where one of those, where, you know, one of those quarter million people, um, you can stand outside of of that door uh, we hear it it's hard to hear but it's not real in the way that the the sound of the door closing is real to someone who's just lost a spouse or a child or a, a mother father grandfather grandmother that's real um and uh i i just i remember there's a story this weekend of the quarterback for the buffalo bills josh allen played the best game of his career this last weekend. And it wasn't until after the game that it was revealed that his uh, grandmother died the day before the game. So you hear that and you think, Oh, that's sad. His grandmother died, but his grandmother played a huge role in his life. It was like his mother had died. Um, and he decided to play anyway. And only his coach knew what had happened. It's going to make me cry talking about this. It's football for, for, for goodness sake. But there's something about that that you think he had a major door close in his life and he had to go on the next day. He didn't have to, he chose to go on the next day. And that's what makes us uh, admire people for their courage. You know, that's where you're reminded of, wow, people are amazing. People are amazing. They've had doors closed in their lives and they're still walking. And some of these doors we think, how could anyone walk if that door closed? And yet they are still walking. There is a mystery to hope that is important for us to embrace and understand. There's a mystery to hope that we need. And uh, I, I was thinking about one of my favorite authors, John Eldridge. By the way, you should read pretty much anything John Eldridge has ever written. You will be transformed and engaged in the heart of Jesus by reading anything that John Eldridge has written. Uh, some of his books are the best books I've ever read. Uh, he's most well known for Wild at Heart, but he's he's written Journey of Desire and um, a great book about Jesus called um, A Beautiful Outlaw, uh, all kinds of things. So, so I have tremendous respect from John Eldridge's point of view about what it is to follow Jesus. And so I looked up what he has said about hope, and I found a blog that he wrote that I think the first third of the blog uh, really fits with what we're talking about today. It's about hope and it's about how hope has a foundational role in our, in our life. So let me read just this portion of the blog. He wrote this several years ago. This was before, uh, you know, this was when global pandemics were only in films, <laughs> not in real life. So <clears throat> it wasn't written recently. It was written several years ago. So he's not really looping in our current battle with hope deferred right now, but Here's the first part of his blog called Restoring Hope, and then Becky and I will talk about it. We could sure use some hope right now. That's in quotes. He says, I was chatting with a friend last week about the things going on in our lives and in the world when she said this statement. We could sure use some hope right now. We weren't talking about a major loss or suffering, just the way everyone seems to be facing some hard thing or another. There was a pause in the conversation, and my friend, normally a very buoyant woman, said, Again, we could sure use some hope right now. We sure could. 
Hope is one of the three great treasures of the human heart. He's quoting here from 1 Corinthians 13. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. A life without faith has no meaning. A life without love simply isn't worth living. But a life without hope is a dark cavern from which you never escape. These things aren't simply virtues. Faith, hope, and love are mighty forces. And hope is the cornerstone. The fate of the other two depend upon hope's resilience. And here he quotes from Colossians 1. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from hope. Isn't that surprising? Both our faith and our love spring from or result from our hope. But of course, hopelessness makes it impossible to care. Without hope, faith is just a doctrine gathering dust on our shelves. The highest things that make a heart worth having and a life worth living, they rise or fall upon the, conditions, upon the condition of our hope, which makes hope the mightiest force of all. Love is the noblest, hope is the linchpin. And we'll stop there. So that's John Eldridge um, riffing on the foundational role of hope in our life. So, so Becky Nader, how do faith and love, he's saying faith and love actually spring from our hope. How does that work? Why do those two things emanate from hope, do you think? Faith and love. I think it has to do with what, where your hope is being put in, right? Because we, the, the truth is that we put our hope in a lot of things and we put our hope in our careers. We put our hope in our spouses. We put our hope in our children or our ability to have children. We put our hope in our homes and we put our hopes in our government. And a lot of those things can, well, most of them, have strong abilities to completely fail us. And so faith has to do with where we put our hope. Um, having faith means that we say, I'm going to put my hope in God instead. And all of these other things are going to be underneath that, right? So they're immaterial to where our hope is. And um, yeah, you know, what's interesting about that is you're, is you're saying that uh, I have this picture of a car in my head. And the car has an engine and a drivetrain that you have to have the engine to give power to the drivetrain and the drivetrain makes it go. So you could think about uh, faith and love as the engine and drivetrain of our life. Um, but if the gas tank is empty, those things don't work. And hope, I think, is a, a way of thinking about hope is it's the fuel in the gas tank. Mm -hmm. And it's the only one of those things that drains. You know what I mean? So the, the gas tank can drain or it can be filled up. And if you're filled up with hope, then you have some good um, road in front of you that you can drive that car on. Your faith and love are going to be fueled by that full gas tank for quite a ways. But if you're perpetually running out of gas and being marooned in the desert or by the side of the road where there's no one, no, no one to help you, and you're constantly having to walk to the gas station to try to get a gallon of gas to get your car going again. And you're, you never seem to find a gas station that can really fuel up your entire car. Then you're, you're living with kind of tight fisted life. Uh, you're all, your hope is always draining out of you and, and you don't have a way of refilling that gas tank in a way. And so it makes sense to me that, that hope, would be the fuel for those things. And those things lay dormant and unrealized if we don't have a fuel tank that's being filled. And so um, he's talking about here also about being careful with our hope. And you kind of mentioned that too, uh, Becky, that we have to pay attention to where our hope is coming from. It's another way of saying we have to be kind of circumspect about hope and where we're getting fuel from and I, I was thinking about when Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. You can think of that another way, like uh, don't get your hope from the wrong place is another way of saying that. Be careful of where you're getting your hope from. 
So, so what, what do you think that means to, uh, to be careful with our hope aside from paying attention to where we're getting it from? What does that mean? Be able to be cautious about where you're getting your hope from. Well, I think the things that we tend to put our, our, the majority of our hope in really show us where our worship is going. And so, hmm. you know, I, I feel this very keenly right now. My, I don't think anyone would, would say it's a bad thing that my hope is in having a family, not just like to have kids and raise them and see them grow up and do all of those things. But it's also, if you don't have kids, you don't have grandchildren either right? Like you're, you're saying goodbye to all of that. That's a, and I don't think anyone would, would say that that's bad, but right now I can feel it very, very distinctly that God is like, are you going to put all of your hope here? Are you going to worship this? Is this, because if you do, you can already feel it. Your gas tank is empty right now. Hmm. Your hope is completely diminished and you are, you're heading into bad territory if you don't take the time right now to shift and say, okay, God, this was something I really wanted, but I'm going to, I'm going to put my hope back on you. I, I could easily fall completely. I, I could completely fall apart that, that it is a, a, a very distinct tipping point. And maybe you don't have something as kind of, um, as real as this, but you probably have something, maybe it's your 401k, maybe it's your stable job, maybe it's whatever, but whatever it is that is your ultimate, okay, God, yeah, but I have this and that's actually my security. Um, I can feel it. I could easily fall. I could be angry with God. I could choose to say, this doesn't, this is making me lose my faith. I've seen people lose their faith over things like this. People that I really admire have lost faith over or the loss of a child. And so we have to be really careful. It's really showing me, okay, this is what you actually worship. This is what you actually are putting your hope in. And you're going to have to take the time right now to move that and put it right back where it belongs. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, it it struck me um, about this particular hope deferred in your life. Uh, You've said to me many times in the past that this is more than just a hope to be a parent. It was a hope related to your identity. You said, and I, I took it for exactly how you meant it whenever you say this, I would be a great mom. I agree, totally. Um, you are great with kids. You have a connection with kids that's amazing. You are natural at it. So from a friend like me looking from the outside in, I think, what's the deal here? What, why? Becky would be a gift to any child coming into the world. And so many kids need that gift <laughs> and they they don't get it. And here's someone who has a gift to give. Why? What is this about? But then it, it becomes then threaded in a subtle way into your identity then, because to say I would be a great mom is saying something about your identity. And this is where the rubber meets the road with what you're talking about. Um, is your identity resting on, dependent on this, this um, aspect of your life that seems like it would, ob- there's an obvious reason for it to happen in your life and it's not happening. So there, the question then becomes, well, is my identity still my identity without this? If I walk through that door and close it behind me, have I lost something? And am I giving up on something in my identity? That's where the wrestling match, I think, really happens is, who am I really? Mm-hmm. Am I who I am apart from this pursuit in life, this role in life that, that I've been in the waiting room for forever and it hasn't happened? And it brings up the question, I think, of <clears throat> if hope doesn't really keep us, keep us from experiencing bad things or keep us from experiencing bad things happen, happening in our life, then what do we root our hope in then? Isn't that the point of hope is to hope for things that will keep the wolves at bay and will give us the life that, that we really want? So the question then is, where do we go to find a hope that's real, that is a wellspring of life in us that can't be tainted or dried up by life circumstances, can't even be emptied when something that seems natural to our identity isn't allowed to come out and play. Um, 
where do we find a hope that is as real as that, that can still leave us feeling filled up, even though we're wrestling with the closed door behind us. So I thought it'd be good for us to explore this two different ways um, today. The first way is from Hebrews chapter six. This is a, a portion of towards the end of, of, or towards the middle of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is talking about making oaths and promises and, and how ridiculous some of the um, Jewish traditions at that time around making oaths and promises were, um, how silly some of them were. And it, the writer is trying to say, you only make a real promise or an oath based on the deepest foundation of, of that promise. And so here in Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, he's saying something that I think is really important for us to slow down and hear through this lens of hope, what he's really saying. So here we'll pick it up. If you have a Jesus-centered Bible and you're not driving, flip it open to Hebrews chapter 6. We're starting in verse 18, um, and we'll read to verse 20. So God has given both, both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, so whenever you see a therefore in scripture, it's time to see a stop sign in your head. Stop. What is the therefore about? Uh, what is the, or you could say, what is the therefore, therefore? Um, why is the therefore there? So let me read this over again. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. And Jesus has already gone in there for us. Uh, this, this passage just... I can't get over it. It's, uh, there's, there's something so important here, I think, about hope that comes after the therefore. And that first sentence is, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. So, Becky, that those words, great confidence, when you slow down and pay attention to this, where is the great confidence coming from then? It's the great confidence that builds the hope that lies before us. So where, when you, when you slow down and pay attention to this, where's that great confidence coming from? You know, I get interviewed a lot about my story of like everything that happened to destroy my life, escaping basically in my van. And every time someone asks me like, wow, so this was only a couple of years ago. Actually, we just celebrated, I think this week, the three-year anniversary. Wow. And, um, this was only a few years ago. Look at where your life is now. This is a totally different life that you have. I, I always say it was like, I just got in the car and Jesus was the one driving the escape vehicle, like right behind me. If this was like an action movie, it was like every bad thing that could happen to me was chasing me. And mm -hmm. Jesus was like, Hey, get into the vehicle. And he just sped away. And we, we escaped all of it. And I feel like the same thing is, is happening right now where I have been putting off this door for a long time because I knew that the grief was actually going to be worse than what I already encountered. This actually is more painful and more hurtful. But what I already feel is like this bubble. It's like an igloo, right? And like, that igloo rep represents God's refuge. And he's been in there for a while waiting for me. And it's kind of like a, a container. It's going to, like, I'm going to go in there and there's going to be some grief we have to deal with. But if, if we were in a lab, that container's not going to let it be as bad as it could be because he's already covered it. And he's like, it's not going to be as bad as you think. And that's hope right there. Yeah, you know, I love what your image there of that all this, not just bad stuff, but horrific stuff is chasing you. And Jesus is in the escape car and he invites you in. That is a powerful image. And I think it's a very true image. 
So a person looking from the outside in could say, well, hope is in that Becky got away from that. No, the hope is that Jesus invited you into his car and he took you away from that. Um, it's his presence that is the refuge. It's his presence that is undeniable and foundational and is not based on circumstance. He said, I will be with you no matter what. I will be with you no matter what. And that uh, invitation to be with him no matter what can fuel our gas tank of hope against all odds and against all circumstances and against all uh, advice from others who tell us to, to just eat the right her herb or <laughs> take the right medicine and it will all work out. Well, maybe, maybe, I mean, of course we want our hopes to be realized. There's nothing wrong with desire. Um, but under, underneath that is this, the car, the igloo, <laughs> the metaphor you just used. Will we enter in to his inner sanctuary? And so what he's saying is that these hopes, and you could even say hope deferred, can lead us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Um, th th these experiences of pain in the closed door behind us, if, if, if there to be, if there's beauty to come out of these, these closed door experiences, it will be an entering into the inner sanctuary that Jesus will lead us to this place of intimacy where somehow, some way, against all odds, we find peace and restoration and redemption and hope in that inner sanctuary because we are present to him. In the, the Jesus-centered life, the book I wrote about, I don't know, five years ago now, there's a scene that I think was prophetic that Jesus gave to me relative to hope. I painted this scene out. I can't remember what chapter it was in, but um, our life with Jesus is like, sometimes like you've, uh, my, my daughter Emma's worst fear is falling through the hole of an outhouse somewhere in the mountains. She can never go to an outhouse in the mountains because she's- My sister has the same fear. Yeah. And we had a house in Mexico. It was the only, like, it was the only bathroom. We would be there for weeks and she never would use it the whole time. Yeah, Emma's, Emma's never used an outhouse in, <laughs> in the mountains. Because totally was, afraid of them. Yeah, deep fear that she'd <laughs> fall down. And of course, that's, uh, uh, that's a, that would be a fear for anyone. But if you think about if you actually, if this happened to you, if you fell down through the hole in an outhouse and there was no one around and you thought I could die here and you got down there and your eyes started to adjust to, adjust to the light and you realized there was a person down there. There was a person already down there. And you, you, you were startled and you said, who is it? Who's, who's here? And it, it was Jesus. And he spoke up and said, it's me. It's Jesus. I've been here a long time. Yeah. I've actually been waiting for you. Well, what are you doing here, Jesus? I'm just waiting for you. Um, and waiting for, for you to join me. Because I want you to know that when you're here down in this outhouse, I'm with you. Um, you're not alone. And your hope now is in me. Um, and if you're in a place in your life where it feels like that actually happened to you, I fell through the hole, you can be assured that there is someone waiting there. Um, and he, he's there all the time. He, in his humility, he doesn't spend some time in the bottom of the outhouse. He lives there waiting for those times when we fall there so that he can be there already for us. And that his presence then in that place would give us our hope that, um, that we will make it, we will survive. So um, this, this little passage from Hebrews, I think, reframes where the hope's coming from without negating the pain and grief and lament that comes when you fall through the hole in the outhouse. Of, of course, no one wants to be in the bottom of an outhouse. It's horrific. But what is there that can uh, bring us through? It's the, it's the presence of Jesus um, there. So I thought we could also take a look <clears throat> at John chapter 9. This is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's also a very long and detailed story. <clears throat> and I think it's important to actually read the whole thing 
And then Becky and I will talk about this to close off the podcast today. But um, this is when in Jesus heals a man who's born blind. So the context here um, is it, it's a man who's uh, been blind from birth. You'll see in just a second when I read the story, he's been blind from birth and, and he has no hope in his life. He's going to live out his life blind, begging from others, marginalized, uh, discriminated against, and seen by the power brokers of his world as just a pile of crap by the side of the road. He doesn't matter to anyone. He's just a nuisance if he's anything. That's this man. And um, he, he lives there by the side of the road. Uh, so what does his family think of him? What, does he have any friends? Is he just isolated and alone and just trying to make it from day to day? That's some of the context here. So I thought it would be interesting for Becky and I to take a look at the story of this man in John chapter four. And um, we're, the obvious sign of hope is that his sight is restored by Jesus. I want us to slow down and look at <clears throat> what are other, other clues to restored hope in this man's life. So here we go. John chapter nine, starting in verse one. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a, more, a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now you have a clue as to how the culture thinks of blind people, people born, born blind. It's either this guy sins or his parents' sins, but what's a given is this guy has, has is, his condition is the result of someone screwing up. He is a mistake. This guy's life is a mistake. Jesus responds to them. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the man's over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came back seeing his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was and others said, no, no, no. He just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, yes, I'm the same one. And they asked, well, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, well, the man they call Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who'd been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. And the Pharisees asked the man all about it. So they took him to the Pharisees because you're not supposed to work and healing is work. So somebody violated the dang law and made this guy's sight restored. <laughs> So the Pharisees are interested not about the man's restoration, but who broke the law here. So the Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, well, he put mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such a miraculous sign? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, well, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. Now the parents are shaking in their boots now. So now they're getting called into the religious leaders who, who pull all the strings. They can make the parent's life good or terrible. It's just with, with a word. So imagine their fear. So the Pharisees asked the parents, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, well, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said he's old enough. Ask him. So these people, these parents did not want to be social outcasts for the rest of their lives. So they, they were shaken in their boots. So for the second time, they called in the man who'd been, been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Well, I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I do know this. I was blind and now I could see. <laughs> but what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? 
Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you do not know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one's been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Now he's an outcast again. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the son of man? And the man answered, well, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? Well, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. So there is all of chapter nine of John. Wow, I just, it is one of those stories about Jesus that just deepens my love for him. Um, and I love the detail of it. So, so Becky, the question here is besides the restoration of this man's sight, what is a source of hope for this man now? What do you pick out in this story that is fueling his hope or is evidence of his restored hope in this story? So we, we said that faith is the engine, right? Yeah. And faith actually requires kind of a combination of belief and trust. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah. Right. And, and honestly, I went to theology classes where we just talked about the theology of faith that made it much more complex than that. But I think from a simplified version, faith is an element of belief and trust. And so we know that miracles don't equal faith, right? So they saw this miracle. It was right there in front of them. And yet they still didn't believe, right? Mm, yeah. We knew we, we know that facts don't equal faith. So they were presented with tons of facts here. I mean, we went through a lot of facts. This is the fact. He was born blind. We interviewed the parents. There was a whole like judge and jury, ju judge yeah. Judy came, right? <laughs> and at the end of it, the Pharisees, still no faith. They had no faith. But this man experienced Jesus and therefore he had faith, right? And so I think that when to experience Jesus, you have to first humble yourself. Yeah you have to enter into his refuge. And that means that you have to let go. The humbling part is saying, I am recognizing that I have to let go of this, this thing that I'm holding on to and making more important than Jesus. I have to let go to, of it. And I have to have this element of, of belief and trust in him to let go of it and then enter into that refuge to say, okay, God, this is going to be hard. And I actually believe in you and trust you enough that I'm going to let you cover me so that we can get into healing, right? Like we have to heal. I trust you enough to do that. I know that this healing is going to hurt. It's going to be hard, but you're going to come. I'm going to give you that opportunity. And in this whole story, it's like miracle, no faith, facts, no faith. But this man stands before him. He has experienced Jesus fully and completely. And he's like, there's no, there's no question to me about who you are. Yeah. No question. I, I love how you just broke that down. It's very powerful. Um, and I, and I, as you were talking, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my wife last night. Um, we were just talking about um, what it means to, to live an intimate life with Jesus. And I was kind of trying to sum up for her the the shift, the tipping point in my life that occurred 10 or 10 or 20 years ago, I said, you know, I came to this point where I was so convinced by the beauty, the upending beauty of the heart of Jesus in my life, that the shift that happened in me is I determined that I would bend to Jesus for the rest of my life, rather than trying to bend Jesus to me for the rest of my life. And it was, it was like flipping a switch. Uh, I mean, it's as close to, in my life, flipping a switch, where I decided that 
whatever Jesus said or did or is saying or doing right now in my life is good because I am now convinced of the goodness of his heart. So whatever he says or does is good, and I will bend to that, even if it upends and undermines an existing belief I have or a, a cultural uh, understanding that I have or uh, a uh, practice that I have uh, inherited from my family growing up or a way of seeing the world that I've always thought of. Now what's different is that if when I bend to Jesus, those things are under duress or even destroyed, so be it. I am putting my lot into the heart of Jesus now, and I will bend to him, not demand that he bends to me any longer. That changed my life. Um, it continues to change my life. It is, uh, it is the single thing that fuels everything I speak about and write about, that everything must bend to Jesus now. And that's kind of how I translate what you just said into my own story, that, that uh, this man now, uh, <laughs> the, the, the evidence of hope in his life from this marginalized piece of crap by the side of the road who's only the product of sin, that that's his reality. He well, is, they actually said that he was sin. Like yeah. that he, he was sin. That was his identity was sin. And he's, he's going toe to toe with these religious leaders who have hanging over him this thing that his parents are totally frightened by. Hey, we could cast you out of the synagogue. He's like, big freaking deal. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know the life I've lived my whole life? Who cares if you cast me out of the synagogue? I don't care. Um, and that's that humility that you talked about, Becky, is how he approaches Jesus when Jesus finds him. I think it's important to note that Jesus sought him out. Jesus found this guy. He wanted to find this guy, and he did. And his, his intention in finding this guy was to ask him, do you know who did this to you? And the guy doesn't. He just knows that he respects and honors Jesus enough to risk getting cast out of the synagogue to defend him, which is what happened to him. And Jesus says to him, uh, if you met the Messiah, would you believe in him? Yes, I, I would. Who is he? It's me. And the man immediately worships him because it all makes sense to him. Of course, you're the Messiah. It was like a nanosecond for him to then decide in then my context of my story, to worship Jesus as a fundamental aspect of our life means to bend to Jesus. That is our worship of him. It is always and in every circumstance to bend to him. That is our fundamental worship of him. And this is what the man does. He worships Jesus. And uh, I, I think one of the things that this, this story is, has such profound impact on me is just thinking about living in that guy's shoes. And his parents don't stick up for him. He's alone facing all these power brokers. And he is as sassy as they get um, in his response to them because he's free. <laughs> There's a freedom in him that's very attractive and uh, is fully realized when he comes back into contact with, with Jesus. So I wondered, uh, Becky, just to close off here, um, when have you experienced sort of the same sort of transcendent hope in your life that is fueling this guy's response? Now, is there a time in your life when you felt like hope is a gathering, is a, is a, uh, a revving engine in my life right now? No matter what circumstances I'm in, my hope right now is transcendent in my life. It's, it rises above my circumstances. Can you think of a time in your life when it felt like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the moment that I was standing in divorce court after eight hours of testifying and every lawyer telling me that what I was trying to accomplish was never, that hadn't happened in Colorado in 10 years. And the judge ruling came down and it came down like 10 times more amazing than I could have even imagined. And 
I think that like my lawyer won sort of some sort of award. <laughs> so <laughs> like, it felt like a miracle just like came down and it was so much protection. It was like an enormous protection. Like, like, don't worry about any of this. Hmm. And, you know, I didn't even have, like, I had a girl who was, this was her first divorce trial that she'd ever tried. I didn't even have like a good experienced lawyer. Like she was all I could, I could get. And so like, God just like, was like, I got this, you know? And when you have circumstances like that in your life where the protection is so intense and it's like, nothing else could have been, no other worldly thing could have done this. This is Jesus himself intervening right now on my going going back to your metaphor from before that i love so much that he's inviting you into the car it's another way of saying is we got this because you're in my car now together we got this (laughs) the only thing that matters becky is you get into my car and he'll jesus will reach across to the passenger side open the door use his hand to invite us in but ultimately we have to walk over there and get in the car that that's the only thing he asks of us to walk over and get in the car with him and sometimes only desperation causes us to do that to lay aside all of our other strategies and say you know what i think i'm ready to get into the car with him um so that's the only thing he asks of us will you get in um and then when you're in you're in you're with him and everything changes when you're with him even that what you just said, this miracle that happened in divorce court, your, your landscape changes when you are with him. The, the, your surroundings change when you are with him. Everything looks different when you're with him. Um, and I, I guess the best and most practical thing I can say as we close off here is if you can understand what I mean, and this is I'm talking to you who are listening right now, if you can understand what I mean, by bending to Jesus, instead of requiring that he bend to you, if you can understand that, um, then you can decide to do that yourself today. That today is the, is the day, uh, I'll mark it on my calendar, when I start bending my life to Jesus, not the other way around. And um, it's not, I'm not saying that this is an easy life or it's everything's clear. And in every situation, you, you always know what it means to bend to Jesus, but making that decision, I have, I've had enough evidence now about the goodness of Jesus heart. I'm ready to make this call. I'm going to bend myself to him. Um, I, I think you can do that today. Um, we, when we, if we treat our hope, here's another way of thinking about this. If we treat our hope the same way we treat our nutrition, our diet, you know, when you think about our health depends on what we feed on. And in the kingdom of God, this is the message of the gospel. The main course in our diet is the heart of Jesus. That, that's how we end up bending our life to him. When we consider our diet and say the main course is going to be Jesus. Um, every single day, a different serving up of Jesus that we feed on his heart by listening to him every day. And we listen through scripture. We listen through silence. We listen like a child, inviting him in. We listen when we hear his invitation with the open door and we get in his car. That, that's how we feed on his heart. We, we listen uh, in the little moments and the big moments. Any last words here, Becky, before we uh, close off? If whatever it is that you're holding on to or that you're staying in the waiting room for, it's, it's probably time to trust him enough to walk through. And in light of that, I just want to say, uh, I, I felt like saying this earlier, but it's right to say it now. You know, Becky, you have the heart of a lion. That's the truth. And your story that you just described proves that. So yes, you're in the car with him, but he loves that heart. And, uh, Um, your story is a story of hope um, against all odds. And uh, that, that story alone points people to the worship of Jesus. That's, that's who they're drawn to through your story. So um, I just have so much respect for your courage. So both Becky and I are crying right now. So it's probably, (laughs) 
it's probably time to end the podcast. <laughs> so, gang, thanks for listening. Um, you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, season five, episode 41, if you want links to what we talked about today. I'll put a little John Eldred's link on there for you if you want to see his blog or his books. Um, and um, there's also a link on there to Becky's website. So she's, as she's mentioned, she's launched her own very successful marketing consulting uh, company in Oregon. And uh, if you want to find out more about that, or if you have a, a job you think she might be interested in, uh, find the link on the page. It's there. Um, and it's uh, just so we can tell them, Becky, it's, it's uh, th just tell them the website. Um, it's right. bhmarketingfirm.com. bhmarketingfirm.com. There you go. Gang, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from, well, let's just say ricklawrence.com. <laughs> and you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next time. Bye.